Amen. Amen. Now, today uh, I want to begin by saying do not allow condemnation from this message because this message is potentially very, very um, um, agitating. I don't mean I'm going to make you mad. I don't mean that kind of agitation. But uh, the name of the message is when you don't feel thankful. Um, now, I know that it's probably just people in other churches that only, you know, have that battle. And that's, that's called sarcasm. Um, we all have that struggle of not feeling thankful at times. Um, but I also know that there's a tendency, like when you preach about prayer or you preach about fasting or sometimes when you preach about giving, there's a tendency. It's not intended, but people begin to feel condemnation. I ought to pray more. I ought to give more. Uh, you know, I, I ought, to, ought to do more, whatever. And, and it may be true that we ought to pray or do or give more, but the devil, if he can't fight the truth of a message, he will try to warp the message or contaminate the message. And we end up feeling condemnation. I don't want us to feel condemnation. I'm asking you today when we read the text to make a conscious effort to obey the command that may be, may be the most difficult command to obey in the New Testament. I think it's definitely in the top four or five. This idea of being thankful for all things. I was, um, I was singing at the top of my voice this week. You say, oh, Pastor, I didn't know you say, oh, I, yeah, I love to sing. Uh, and I usually do it when I'm on the writing mower because I can sing what I want to sing. I don't have to worry about trivial things like keys and melodies and things like that. And um, one of the kids saw me, uh, this was a while back, saw me and said, you look like you were just singing away. I said, oh, yeah. I said, when I'm on the writing mower, I'm usually singing to the top of my lungs. And they said, well, what, what do you sing? And I said, well, if I'm crying, I'm usually singing something about the Lord. And uh, I said, that's the easy way to tell. And uh, they said, well, what were you singing today? And I said, let me think. Oh, I said, I was thinking of the Blues Brothers. And I was singing, sometimes it's hard to be a woman. <laughs> Giving all your love to just one man. But if you love him. You know, I said, that's probably what it was. And um, I, yesterday I was mowing and uh, a mower had been down. I was so happy to get it back. I was celebrating. And I, I caught myself singing a song I have not thought about in years. I was singing an old song out of our church hymnal called Hold the Fort. You, maybe you've heard it. Uh, don't worry. I, one Blues Brothers song is enough for me. But <laughs> the words go like this. Uh, the chorus, hold the fort for I am coming. Jesus signals still. Wave the answer back to heaven. By thy grace we will. We used to sing that all the time. Anybody else sing that song growing up? Well, this is a pointless message. Okay, there, we got a couple. That's good. And, uh, you know, one of the verses is like this. Uh, um, see if I can remember. See the mighty host advancing. 
uh, Satan leading on, mighty men around us falling, courage almost gone. And when I was in college, we had a preacher come to Southeastern and um, he made such incredible fun of that song. He said, we are, now be careful, I want to give you a warning. The next four minutes, you don't know where you want to say amen. So it's probably just be quiet for four minutes so you don't get embarrassed or I don't get embarrassed. Um, but he said, we're overcomers in Christ. We're people of faith. Anybody that sings that song ought to be, you know, taken out and shot. Hold the fort. We, the gates of hell won't prevail against us. And boy, I tell you what, that sounded good to me. And I, I, I even used that in a couple of sermon uh, sermons that I did as I was having those years of learning to preach. And I thought I was just God's man of faith and power. But something happened to me. I, I got to tell you, um, I was on a missions trip. I used to go on every missions trip our church did when I was younger. Um, and, and missions trips were, were tough for me because I'm not a skilled laborer. I don't, I don't, I don't have many building skills. In fact, if you want me to work the saw, you need to give me two or three options of a line to follow because you never know which way it's going to go. So what that translates into is I'm the guy that carries the shingles up the ladder. I'm the guy that carries the blocks from the truck to the building site. And uh, I'm the guy that they give a hammer and say, knock this wall down kind of thing. Um, and, and I remember I was on a trip. It was in, in um, well, I want to be careful because I don't want to identify any of the, the workers. But it, obviously a mission trip was you would figure it was in another country. Um, the temperature was 106 degrees um, and humidity was some outrageous kind of thing. It wasn't when I was at this church. It was another church. And uh, after three or four days um, of, of a really tough trip, um, we, had, we had to ride a bus like 30 miles to the work site. And you'd get on the bus and I made, you know, I made friends. I was holding people's goats and chickens on by the time we would get out there at the end of the week. And it was, uh, it was a tough trip. And I got a little irritated because I realized that some of the people weren't doing the kind of work I was doing. They, they, were, they, they were not really carrying their part of the load. And um, I wanted to say something and I said something to a friend who really a true friend said, you can't feel that way. And um, he said, you don't know it yet, but there's a difference between 30 and 50. And I said, I don't think so. That's what every 30 year old says. <laughs> but I found out that not only is there a difference between 30 and 50, there's a big difference between 40 and 60. And I found out there's a monumental difference between 65 and 66. <laughs> and this is what my friend said. He said, just, he said, don't judge someone, somebody just because they can't lift what you can lift. And I said, you're right. I went back to church and was tempted to use my hold the fort analogy in a sermon. And he, the Lord spoke to me, said, you remember the last time you were in your home church and you sang that song? 
And I did, and I can think of people, I could call their names right now, that their hands were lifted. They were singing, hold the fort for I am coming. Jesus signal still wave the answer back to heaven by thy grace we will. And I had become such an arrogant idiot because of that sermon that had been preached in that chapel. I thought that hold the fort was for sissies, that nobody who is an overcoming Christian holds the fort but you know what had happened is there's also a difference between 19 and 29. And I'd been a pastor and I looked at my people that loved to sing that song. I remembered those people in my home church that used to sing that song. And you know what I realized? They were, they were in a fight of their life. Some of them were in a fight to hold their families together. Some of them were in a fight to get their children to come back home, to come back to church. Some of them had a terminal doctor's report. And while I was over here saying you ought to have faith, what I was, the Lord was showing me is that there are times in every life where all you can do is hold the fort. There are times in life where all you can do is just hold on. Now, those times don't last forever. And you don't want to live there. You don't want that to be your modus operandi where you're always defeated and always struggling. But God gave me a real understanding uh, when I was, I think, 30 years old about that time that life is not as cut and dried as we think it is. And it's not as smooth a sailing all the time as we think it is. Now, I also know the other can be true. We can just become pessimistic and, and everything's wrong. You know, you can, get the, 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 you can get the car of your dreams given to you free, but you're just upset because you know it'll tear up one day. You know, you can't do that. You can't do that. So what you've got to do is find the balance and there is one thing that God commands us that I want to focus on today. A lot of commands, but this is the one I want to focus on. But I also want you to understand that this may be the most difficult commandment, at least one of the top, as I said, four or five commandments in the New Testament to keep. And is this idea of being thankful for everything. I want you to not accept condemnation. I don't want you to, to say, well, I just can't do that. This is not hard. It's not hard to be thankful for everything. It is impossible to be thankful for everything. But I'd rather have an impossible thing than a hard thing because the hard thing usually means it's up to me to do it. The impossible, God takes over and gives us an ability that is beyond our expectation or our control. Now, Ephesians is a, most uh, conservative scholars believe that Ephesians is a circular letter, which means that it went to a whole group of churches in an area. Um, I think Glenn has, has taught Ephesians for a long time to our um, uh, school of leadership. And most scholars believe that Ephesians is a circular letter. Um, you know, in one place he says to this church, read the letter I sent you to this church and let them read their letter to you. So letters were circulated because there's no mention of particular parties or unique situations. We're almost certain that Ephesians was a general summary letter written to all the churches, at least in Asia Minor. And the copy that our 
uh, was the most reliable copy we had was the one that was addressed to Ephesus. So you say, well, what are you trying to say by that, Pastor? Well, I'm trying to say this. That, that tells us that this is a universal principle. That tells us that this is so important that Paul said every church needs to grasp this. You know, if I was, if I was the Pope today and I was writing a letter to all my churches around the world, what I would say to the church in California right now might be different than what I'd say to the church in Florida because circumstances are, are a little different. They're facing a different set of challenges. But this is something that was so dynamic and so universal that Paul put it in a circular letter and he said, whoever reads this, this is important for you. Are you with me? Let's read what he said. So then be careful how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine in which there is debauchery or excess, King James says, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. And here's what stands out, verse 20. Always giving thanks. Now, okay, let's just leave it right there. I'm fine. But Paul has the audacity to finish the sentence. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God our Father and subject yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. Loved ones, I, I want you to know when I'm talking about being thankful for all things, this is not a matter of discipline. Uh, I, discipline is important in the Christian life, but I've said this before. Discipline is the lowest form of devotion. Discipline's important. We ought to have a spiritual stamina so that we do what's right, even when we don't want to do what's right, but that's discipline. But you don't want your wife to be faithful to you. You know, you go home and say, honey, I'm so thankful you've never broken your vow. You've never broken my heart. You don't want her to look at you and say, well, I'm just disciplined like that. You might be thankful for her discipline, but that's not the, that's not the response you want. You want her to say something like, well, how, how could I look at any other man when I've got God's perfect model living with me right here. Well, maybe you want something a little less dramatic than that because you might not believe that. That might make you wonder what she's been up to, but you know what I'm trying to say? Discipline is important. And let me say this to our couples. Sometimes you may be in a season of life where it's discipline that keeps you from being unfaithful to your spouse. I mean, don't, don't throw it out the window because discipline is the lowest form of devotion. Discipline has its place, but we want to have in our devotional life to the Lord, we want to have in our affection to our spouses, we want to have a love that makes defection impossible and unthinkable. Discipline might be part of that, but there comes a love that surpasses all understanding. Now, um, Let's talk about this idea of being thankful. We're going we're gonna to deal with a couple of issues today. How do we do it? 
how can we be thankful for all things when all things aren't clearly something to be thankful for? Pastor, how do, why should I be thankful for my uncle raping me when I was a teenager? Oh, that's not, that's not what Paul's talking about. You know, how can I be thankful for a, a cancer diagnosis? How can I be thankful for that? Well, we, we really need to put that in context and understand what it means to be thankful for all things and in all things. Because if we don't understand that, we become fatalistic. And we become, um, we become doubtful of the Lord's love because God just does things just because he's God and he can. Uh, we don't, we don't want to go there, but we want to develop a genuine thanksgiving. Shakespeare wrote these words. It's about all the Shakespeare I remember. But uh, he said, how sharper than a serpent's tooth is a thankless child. How sharper than a serpent's tooth is a thankless child. I read one time about Rudyard Kipling and how he was making a fortune as a, writing, uh, as a writer. Somebody figured out that he was being paid uh, 10 shillings a word. Every word he wrote brought 10 shillings to him. Now that was, in those days, that would be about like two dimes. And... Um, uh, I don't even think England uses shillings anymore, but it was a very small amount, but it was still substantive. That's when you could buy a meal for uh, a reasonable price instead of some exorbitant fund. And there were a bunch of college students that really got irritated. They were influenced by um, a kind of a socialistic trend, and they said nobody should be paid 10 shilling for a word. So they scraped their money together, put 10 shilling in an envelope, sent it to Rudyard Kipling and said, here's 10 shilling. He said, they said, give us an example of a word worth 10 shillings. And he wrote back, nothing in the envelope except one piece of paper that said, thanks. <laughs> thanks. Verse 20, as I said, may be the most difficult command to obey in the scriptures, but it carries with it the greatest potential for blessing. Now, let's, first of all, don't, don't look at anybody and don't, don't raise your hand. Oh, and we're, in the, we're back in the amen zone now. You can say amen. But um, there are four basic types of people in regard to this issue of gratitude. Now, there are subgroups, but I think everybody's one of four types of people. Number one, you are the kind of person that never thinks about life and blessings. Everything that comes your way, you deserve it. And it, it ought to be that way. And uh, you don't expect thanks. You don't give thanks. And just if I get something, it's the way life ought to be. Then there are those that constantly complain. No matter what you do for them, it's never enough. No matter how you serve them, it's not the right way. Um, thirdly, there are people that are grateful for obvious things. Now, I think most people fall at least in this category. When they see something obvious, they're thankful for the obvious blessing. But there is that rare slice of hum humanity. And the apostle tells us we ought to all be like this. But as I said, it's not difficult, it's impossible without the help of the Lord. There's this fourth group, the highest level, that are always grateful for all things. Now, again, we're going to talk about the delineation of those thoughts. Um, I think about Abraham Lincoln. No, I wasn't alive when he was around, but I've read a lot about him. And 
On the night that Abraham Lincoln died, they emptied out his pockets, of course, as they prepared his body uh, to leave the room where he was. And they found his wallet. And in his wallet, um, among other things that you would expect, was a, a piece of newspaper wrapped around a dime. Here's the president of the United States that has a clipping from a newspaper wrapped around a dime. When his family was asked about it, this is what was said. The dime was given to my father by a little boy on his second campaign, you know, his campaign for reelection. The little boy said, Mr. President, this is all I have, but I want you to have it. And Lincoln, you know, sometimes we would have said, oh, no, son, you keep the dime. You need the dime more than me. But I tell you, sometimes there needs to be a re renewal and a revival of people learning how to accept things. Because whenever you give something back, you think you're being noble. But what you may be doing is insulting the gift and the giver. And he, his family member said he took that dime with such appreciation because that was riches to that little boy. But he took the dime and it was wrapped in a newspaper. He said at the height of Lincoln's unpopularity, um, it was just a paragraph out of a newspaper clipping that said, problems notwithstanding, the gentleman from Illinois may prove to be one of the greatest presidents who ever lived. Abraham Lincoln didn't need dimes and paragraphs, but it meant so much to him. It meant so much to him that uh, he began to understand what I think we need to understand is the value of truly being thankful. Okay, let's, let's look at three questions today. I want to ask for how long should we have a thankful heart? Okay, I'll try it for a week. Number two, for what should we express thankfulness? And then the third question I want us to look at is to whom should we be thankful? Okay, now Holy Spirit, work in our hearts and help us to understand. For how long should we have a thankful heart? It's an easy answer, one word, always. Okay, let's go on to number two. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> How long do I have to involve myself in this exercise of being thankful for all things? He says, always giving thanks. Always. And that's the way God works with us. Think of these verses. I don't think these are in your outline. You can just jot the references down. Psalm 68, 19. Are these in the outline? They are? Okay. Um, Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. I shouldn't just be thankful today because he's bearing my burdens, because tomorrow he's going to bear my burdens again. Okay. Um, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Every morning, God is going to show compassion to me, so I ought to be thankful. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about every, anything, but in every situation, every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Not just at select times, not just 
when we feel like it. Oh, I, am, I tell you, one of the most spiritual moments of just being in a place ever. And some of you were with us when we went to the um, Corey Ten Boom White Shop, the, the hiding place house uh, in, in Amsterdam, Holland. And we got to stand in the actual hiding place that had been built for those Jews to be hidden uh, during the Nazi searches. And um, I tell you, I, I just felt such an uncommon presence of God in that place. And I thought of the book, The Hiding Place, which I recommend to you. And in, in um, one of the settings, um, they, they had not been given much to eat. And someone somehow secured uh, an, an extra morsel of food that they were dividing among themselves there in the, in the bunkhouse. And uh, Corey started to eat hers and her sister Betsy says, wait, Corey, we haven't given thanks. And Corey said what we think, but would never say. She said, Betsy, you don't think he expects us to be grateful for this. And, and she really meant it. She said, this is nothing. This is trash. We would feed our pigs better than this. But Betsy says, yeah, we, we need to be thankful whether it's at a good time or a bad time, whether circumstances are tough. So here's that. That's the first thing. Now, I know it's still too big to wrap our heads around, but we are to always, today, tomorrow, till the end of our lives, we are to be thankful for what God allows to come our way. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. Number two for what should we express thankfulness? For what? Okay, we got to do it forever. And what do we need to be thankful for? Everything. All things. Now, this command would be a cinch if it didn't include everything. I'm pretty good about being thankful for things I like. But this command covers everything. Now, this is a sermon in itself, what I'm about to say, and I won't have time to deal with it. Uh, one passage, when he admonishes us to do this, says, for everything give thanks. Another one says, in everything give thanks. And remember, doctrine is not built on a verse, but on all the verses. And when you take all of the passages about giving thanks together, uh, there is no teaching in the Bible whatsoever that is a fatalistic teaching that says you need to be thankful for everything that touches your life. Like I said, rape, cancer, uh, bankruptcy. There's nothing in the scripture that says, I am thankful for these things. I love cancer. I love sexual abuse. I love, you know, uh, uh, abuse of children. I love cancer. No, that is not what the Bible teaches. And that is a silly misconstruing uh, of ideas to say that I've got to be thankful for everything. The idea is that in whatever circumstances you find yourself, in whatever you are facing, you find a thankful heart knowing that when God doesn't rule, God overrules. When God doesn't do something, God will make all things work together for good. And that's a big difference. Not all things are good. Some things are bad. But as one person said, when God does not rule, God overrules. There's another theological argument going on all over the internet right now. And it's the idea of God's sovereignty. You hear things like God rules, but God's not in control. Then you hear God's in control, but God doesn't rule. 
And I think both of those views are wrong. And we've got to understand that God and the idea of sovereignty is so above. We know this, nothing can touch us without God's permission, even the things that are not his will. But God is so in control. That does, when we say God is in control, that doesn't mean that everything that happens, God's okay with. Uh, even some answered prayers, he spoke of Israel and said, I granted their request, but sent leanness to their souls. He kept telling them, you don't want this. And they kept saying, yes, we do. And God kept saying, no, you don't. And they said, yes, we do. And God said, if that's what you want, you can have it. But he said, it brought leanness to their soul. And we've got to get out of the world's mindset that says, if God loved me, he wouldn't allow this to happen. Loved ones, most of the stuff that happens to us is our own doing, not God's doing. It's the system's doing, not our doing. It's the culture's doing, not our doing. But I do know this, God is in charge and God is in control. You say, well, then everything must be his will. Absolutely not. But he's in charge and he's in control. And the reason it's hard for us to grasp, if this is true, how can that be true? It's because God has the ability to work everything together in a way that our minds cannot fathom or comprehend. I had a chance one time to go to a sausage factory. We were, we were on a missions trip and I had a chance to see German sausage being made. And a missionary said, said you don't want to do that. I said, why not? He said, you love sausage, you love hot dogs. He said, it's one thing to eat them, it's another thing to see the way they're made. You don't wanna to go to that factory. So I said, okay, so we ended up going to a castle or something. I, I don't, I don't wanna know how hot dogs are made, but I wanna tell you, those that make them know how to make them into a work of art, okay? God is able to take all the sausage stuff of your life and turn it into something beautiful. He really is. Um, what, what, does, what does being thankful for this stuff mean? Now, again, now what have we established? Not everything that happens to me is good, and I don't have to be thankful for those things. But I create an attitude that says, Lord, I trust you, and nothing can touch me unless you allow it. And if you allow it, you allow it for a reason. So what does this stuff do? Well, it produces greater holiness and peace. The stuff produces greater holiness and peace. Hebrews 12, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, see, that's, you always got to have later on in there. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. It creates a greater dependency. I know we don't like reading 2 Corinthians 12 because it says that sometimes God will say no to your request for a thorn to be taken out of your life. We don't, we don't like that. We don't even agree on what the thorn is. We don't have any idea what the thorn is. But I tell you what came out of it that we need to understand. God saying no produced a greater dependency in Paul's life. And the inference is that he would have not known that level of dependency on the Lord if God had answered his prayer the way he wanted it answered. It gives great, see, I didn't get any amens on that. It creates a greater direction and purpose for living. What did the psalmist say in Psalm 119? Before I was corrected, 
I went astray. King James says afflicted. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. And then it goes on to say, but you have brought me back by the correction of your hand. It gives us a confirmation of faith. See, Job went through the unthinkable, but it was for the purpose of confirming the faith that had been spoken over his life. Listen to what Paul said to the Philippians. He said, the things which have resulted, which have happened to me have resulted in a furtherance of the gospel. He said, more people have heard about the gospel because of my trouble than would have ever heard if I had not had the trouble. Corey Ten Bloom, Ten Bloom, Ten Boom was really getting irritated with her sister, the same one that said we need to give thanks for this food. And they had an infestation of fleas in their bunkhouse. It was horrible. They were covered from top to bottom of their bodies with flea bites and and in you know just the most delicate places. They were going crazy. And Betsy said, we must be thankful for all things. And somebody said, the fleas, even the fleas. And she said, yes. Someone said, why do we need to be thankful for fleas? And she said, I don't know. But later on, we will know. Later on, we will know. And Corey Ten Boom said, night after night, they had a part of a New Testament and they had Bible study after Bible study after Bible study. It was not allowed. The guards would come in and break up studies like that and take material away. But every night they had a portion of the New Testament they read. And woman after woman after woman was giving their heart to Jesus. The whole place was getting converted. And it wasn't until later that, the, that they didn't get interrupted by a guard one time. And the reason they didn't get interrupted by the guard, they found out later, is that they knew there was a flea infestation in that dorm alone, that, that building alone, and the guards would not even go in the place. See, I, I don't understand it. I, I, I don't understand it. But I know there are some things that I face in my life that produce fruit that would not be produced otherwise. I call it the compost principle. All this stuff gets put in a pile right on the front door or sometimes the living room of our lives. And we do not like it. We don't like the smell. We don't like the inconvenience. And then just when it begins to settle down, somebody comes and turns the barrel and stirs it all up again. But I tell you what it produces. It produces mega tomatoes. It produces delicious cantaloupe produces great cucumbers. You see, out of that trash are, is produced nutrients that sustain the greatest growth imaginable. Okay, deeper maturity is number five. Before I was afflicted, uh, I think my notes say affected, that should be afflicted. Um, number six, it produces an unmistakable glory in our lives. Peter said this, we don't even know exactly what this means, maybe unless we've walked through it. But there is a glory that is on your life when you walk through this suffering and this stuff that the indicator is you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have experienced otherwise. I remember reading about uh, Stephen's face glowing like an angel. And I said, Lord, I've got his name. Let me, let me have that anointing where my face glows like an angel. And then it suddenly hit me. His face glowed like an angel because he was being stoned to death. No record of him glowing without stoning. 
Well, I'll let you figure that out. I'm ashamed to say what my follow-up prayer was. I think of the three Hebrew children going through the toughest time of their life, walking through a fire, a literal fire that would take their life. And then all of a sudden there is the very son of God. It, it, as far as we know, I mean, it could have been an angel. We don't know. Um, but, we, but we assume it was a pre-incarnate Jesus walking in the fire with them. You say, boy, I'd love for Jesus to walk with me so I could see him. I mean, he, this is a visible Jesus. This isn't a, I feel you, Jesus. I mean, I'm like the little boy that was scared in a thunderstorm and called for his mama. And she came in and said, baby, there's nothing to be afraid of. Jesus is with you. But he held on to her and said, I need somebody with skin on. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'd say, boy, I'd like Jesus to be where I can see him and everybody else can see him. Well, you can have that, but you might have to be thrown into a fiery furnace. So we've got to understand God says, always make up your mind that you're always going to offer thanksgiving. You're going to be able to give thanks in every circumstance. Not, you, you do not have to say, Lord, thank you that I have this horrible thing in my life. Or, or you don't have to say thank you for the horrible thing. But you need to create an atmosphere where you know that God has everything under control. And here's the third thing. To whom should thankfulness be expressed? And here's the answer, unto the Father through the Son. You see, the Father gives us the explanation for the suffering so we can understand. Jesus gives us encouragement for the suffering so we can celebrate. Uh, I, I encourage you to do a study when you have time. You can't just, you can't go through it quickly. I've tried. But the idea of the fellowship of his suffering and then the Holy Spirit gives us empowering for the suffering so that we can endure. Now, I want you to understand that this is a, one of the most important sentences of this message. The Lord our God is the explanation and the qualifier that makes all things thankworthy. If you take God out of it, all you've got is a positive attitude. But when you put God back in it, we have a reason that we can make everything thankworthy. Now let's wrap it up with this. There are Christian life lessons I want you to take home with you. Here's number one. Um, and I say this, especially to people my age, we need to finish well. Um, the longer we walk with the Lord, especially as things around us change, our tendencies to get something under our skin and a lifetime of blessing just seems to dissipate. I, I've seen this so many times. Now, I've seen the opposite too. My pastor was such a beautiful picture of someone that just everything shifted on him at the end, but he stayed sweet. He stayed in love with Jesus. He was always an encourager. But our tendency is to let something that we don't like get under our skin and a lifetime of blessing suddenly dissipates and all we can see is what we're not happy with. Um, you say, oh, pastor, that's, I know people at all ages that do that. I, I know, but it's particularly the, the, the domain of us that are older. We've lived in such a setting for so long that, you know, our favorite verse becomes, in my day, and I think we need to learn from people that say in my day. But if we're not careful, 
we, I, I tell you what I do uh, just about every week, maybe not every week, and sometimes a couple of times a week, I read a poem by Robertson McQuilkin. Is this in your notes too? Okay. Uh, it's a poem he wrote called, Lord, Let Me Get Home Before Dark. A, a variant title is, Lord, Get Me Home Before Dark. But it's Robertson McQuilkin talking about, Lord, don't let, me, don't let me die too soon, but don't let me die too late. And however long I live, let me continue to be a sweet, purpose-filled person. I want to tell you, you need to read that about every week if you're 50 years old or older. You really do. And uh, I, I, I think about Barzillai, the man um, in the story of David's exile when Absalom drove him off the throne. Barzillai gave pro, uh, produce and provision to David as he was fleeing Jerusalem. Barzillai was a much older man. He was old enough to be David's um, father. May, if I did my calculations right, he's old enough to be David's grandfather. And he loads him down with benefits. Barzillai was a rich, noble man. And when Absalom's rebellion is put down and David's coming back into Jerusalem, Barzillai rides out to welcome the king just as he gave support to the king in the bad days. And David said, Barzillai, come sit at my table, live in my palace. And that wasn't David saying, oh, you've been good to me. Come, come eat it. Come eat. And the little lady's cooking something up and just come eat with me. No, he was offering him a high level cabinet position. He said, Barzillai, I need your wisdom. It was as though David were saying, if I had had your wisdom at my table, the, the stuff that precipitated this rebellion would have never happened. He said, Barzillai, I need you to come sit with me and keep me from ever going astray again. And I tell you what Barzillai did. He did what most of us did. He said, David, I've got a lot of stuff. Let me give you my stuff. But it's too far. I'm too old. It's too late. It's too hard. And I want to tell you, to me, one of the saddest stories in the life of David is Barzillai not, not realizing that his faithfulness was setting him up for a greatest moment of influence in his life. And all Barzillai could say was, eh, I don't know, I have to get up so many times during the night and go to the bathroom and I just, you know, I don't ride like I used to ride and I got to stay home. I got so many doctor appointments. I just need to, uh, you, you just go and I'll send you little gifts all along. And listen to you people my age and older. God has brought you what he's brought you through so that you can shine in your later years, not pout because you're not happy with things. I, I mean it. I, I, more and more, my attitude in just life in general, when do they do that? When did they, they ever take gun smoke off the air? Why do they, I mean, why do they run church this way? I'm not talking about our church, but I see churches. Whoever came up with the idea that we need to build our churches around a consumer mentality? What are they thinking? You know, I have several moments of wisdom a day. But I tell you what I feel. I feel that what I've learned and what I've gained and what I've done is not for me to go sit in a corner somewhere retired 
and complain about the world going to hell in the handbasket. I, I, I mean, I won't always be senior pastor of this church, but I tell you, I'm not going to be out on the lake digging for earthworms. I'm going to be pouring my heart into the next pastor. I'm going to say, this is what I think. I, I'm not going to get in the way, but this is the way I feel. This is what I think is wisdom. And, and I, I am going to spend every moment I can making a difference because of what God has done, not becoming a problem to what God is trying to do. Well, I tell you what, Corey, that's dangerous. What you said wasn't dangerous. That's dangerous. We need to finish well. Here's number two. Stop unnecessary retelling of your pain. You say, but I've been mistreated. I, I know I am not. I am not minimizing your mistreatment. Some of you have been treated so poorly by people. Those people ought to be in jail. I know that. I know that. I'm not, I'm not minimizing it at all. But the decision you've got to make is whether you're going to let God redeem it or whether you're going to live the rest of your life with that justifiable hurt. I know I've told this at least 15 times through the years. I don't think there's a picture of anybody more mistreated, maybe, you know, like uh, uh, Naboth, you know, Naboth's vineyard, maybe, maybe a handful of people like that. But Jacob, Jacob betrayed by his own flesh and blood and left in prison by God, by God's design, left in prison. And he was in prison because he was falsely accused. So he went from being a slave to being a prisoner, all because people mistreated him. And God let him stay there long enough to resolve his issues. I hate that. And it's not even that you get to the point where you understand what happened. You've got to resolve it. That's the hard part. And, and Joseph did this amazing thing. He had two sons by the time reconciliation fully happened. And he's reunited with his father and with his baby brother and reunited with his other brothers that betrayed him. And, and God begins to bless them. Jacob, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Joseph. I think I said Jacob. I meant Joseph. Joseph did two things very well. See, nowadays, um, a lot of times we name our children because of a movie star or the name sounds cool. But in Bible days, to give a child a name was something. It was a blessing or a curse. It was an observation of their character. His first son, he named Manasseh and his second son, he named Ephraim. Now, there may be a reason why they're usually introduced as Ephraim and Manasseh, you know, the youngest and the oldest, but I don't want to go there right now. But this is, this is, I think this gives us an insight into what Joseph did well. Ephraim, his second son, that name means fruitful. Well, <laughs> he goes from being a slave and a prisoner to being the second most powerful man in the land. I'd say fruitful is a pretty good description. Fruitful. But his first son is the key. Manasseh, it means forgetful. He said, I will name my first child forgetful because I have opened my heart to God and he has caused me to forget the pain of my father's household. And before fruitful came, forgetting came. 
And I don't think that's a name it and claim it formula. I think that's a principle that we can see in Joseph's life. And loved ones, I don't know how we do it. I know we do it with fits and starts and stops. But somehow we've got to get to the point where we have been done wrong. We have, life is not fair. Not everybody has the same economic opportunity. Not everybody has the same educational opportunity. You know, life is not fair. That's a result of the curse. It's a result of sin coming in. You know, we can beat that drum as long as we want, but everybody on the planet knows life is not fair. It's not fair. Never has been fair since Eden and won't be fair till Jesus comes. But we can let God work in us to forget the pain of our father's household and then make us fruitful. And it's not easy. It's not easy. I tell you, the Lord spoke to me um, about some of my issues. I, I had a wonderful childhood, but I had a rough ministry for a few years. And the Lord spoke to me. He said, I don't want you to talk about these things that I don't even want to bring them up. But he said, these tough places you've been through, I don't want you to talk about them anymore unless it's therapeutic meaning you need to talk to someone, whether it's a counselor or that closest friend that, and I think everybody needs to have somebody in their life they can talk anything uh, through with. And I'm so thankful that my wife is like that. I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful that I, I have a, a friend or two that I feel like I can tell them the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and I think there's a place for therapeutic conversation. Um, he said, but unless it's therapeutic and you need to talk about it for a particular reason, he said, or unless it's testimonial, that God brought you through this and you're going to show others. I quit laying out how wrong I've been done and I can speak in general terms therapeutically or testimonially. So what I want to encourage you to do is this. If you're older, you need to finish well. If you're younger on the journey, stop retelling the pain. Stop retelling the pain. Let God make you forget the pain of your father's house. Here's number three. Visualize. Well, I've gone from you being quiet to being loose. Now you're quiet again. But visualize the redemption God has given. You know what Joseph was able to do? He's able to say, God caused all this so we can be preserved. You know, he, he, didn't, he, he could have said, I was robbed of my childhood. He, here's a man that spent from his late teens probably to about age 30 in prison and the object of hatred, those are some precious years. Those are some phenomenal years. And he was robbed of them. But the nation of Israel exists today because of those years. He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We need to understand that diamonds, diamonds, are nothing more or less than coal under pressure. <laughs> you, you say, well, I, you know, I don't think any of us bought our wives a, you know, a, a charcoal engagement ring. But you can take coal or form of coal and give it enough time, give it enough pressure, a diamond's produced. You say, you're saying that I'm a diamond? Oh, yeah. Only thing you need is a few thousand years and a whole lot of pressure. But you know, God's amazing. He condenses that into just a short period of time. 
And then, as I said, the compost principle. Here's the last thing. The greatest example is Christ and the cross. He says, the writer of Hebrews does, Therefore we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning or despising its shame. You see, Jesus was able to redeem us because he saw the shame, but he balanced it with the joy and it enabled him to endure. He saw the pain, he saw the joy, and it enabled him to endure. That's what we've got to do. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Remember Jacob? That's why I had said Jacob earlier. I had him on my mind. I knew he was around the corner. Jacob was mistreated, tricked by Laban. Jacob was such a deceiver. I wonder how can he be deceived so easily? He's such a deceiver. But whatever we are, God tends to put us with to either enhance our strength or destroy our evil. So here's the great deceiver being deceived by a greater deceiver. And he said, oh yeah, yeah you can have my daughter. You can, you can have her, no problem. All you need to do is work seven years for her. Well, it's a different culture, but I understand it. But this is what I really love about that passage. David, uh, John, Paul, Peter, Matthew, <laughs> Jacob, thank you. <laughs> Jacob gladly labored seven years. He endured seven years of, mani of a manipulative deal. Why? because of the love he had for Rachel. He loved her so much that the seven years seemed like just a short time to him. Now we can, we can exit several points on the interstate and make all kinds of points, but the bottom line is this. Jacob was able to do this. He was able to endure mistreatment because he said, the love that I have is greater than the sense of mistreatment that I feel. Loved ones, I think that may be the key to a thankful heart. I really do. I, I, I know it's not easy. And like I said, it's impossible. But to do this always for everything or in everything, uh, knowing that it's, it's our looking to God that makes it bearable, it comes to the realization where this is a miracle. To be thankful in everything is a miracle only doable by the grace of the Lord. And it's fueled by your love for Him. It's fueled by your love for Him. Guys, we know, well, I say guys, I mean, mothers do it too sometimes. You know what it's like to work hours beyond your physical ability because you want to feed your family. You want your children to have a better chance at life than you had. You want your wife to have not just the necessities, but some niceties. Or you want your husband to be able to 
do this, that, or the other. The unpleasant is fueled not by our fear of them leaving us. The unpleasant is fueled not by this heavy sense of duty and responsibility. I mean, that may play into it. But the unpleasant is dealt with because of the way we love those that we're serving. Someplace along the way, you've got to move from the discipline of, I ought to be thankful, so I'm going to be thankful, whether I like it or not. You've got to move from that to, Lord, here's my life. I'm struggling with this, but I thank you. I'm struggling with this, but I'm not struggling with this. Lord, I'm struggling with this, but it's not always going to be this way. I'm not always going to be in this phase of my life. And, and, and I know that it's easy for people who aren't in your phase to tell you it's not always going to be this way. But I'm not telling you this. God is telling you this. God says, if you can love me enough and trust me enough, I'll take you from point A to point B. Now, that doesn't mean you'll always get everything you want. But sometimes it does. Sometimes it does. And this is where I want to end this. I don't know why God will say, I'll do this, but not this. I'll do this, but not this. That's matters of his sovereignty. But I know this. He loves you so much that he is absolutely, as my daddy used to say, absolutely, teetotally committed to your welfare and to your good. I can't explain your path. I can't predict the future. But I can tell you this, the closer you draw to God, the closer you draw to God, the more you will begin to see his love and the more you will begin to see his intervention in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these wonderful people that came out today, the, our, our precious folks that are watching online uh, or will be watching later. Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love. Lord, you have loved us with an everlasting love. You don't play games with us. You, there's no capriciousness in you where you do things just because you can. The Lord is good and everything he does is good. Lord, you live above this realm of time and space, so it's hard for us to understand your ways. But Lord, we want to say, and if we can't say it with our whole heart, we ask you to help us. Move us to the place where we can say, we trust you. We trust you. In Jesus' name.